Section 17 of Soldier's Pay by William Faulkner Read for LibriVox.org by Sandra Chapter 5, Parts 1 to 4 1. Captain Green, who raised the company, had got a captain's commission from the governor of the state thereby. But Captain Green was dead. He might have been a good officer. He might have been anything. Certainly he remembered his friends. Two subalterns' commissions were given away politically, in spite of him, so the best he could do was to make his friend Madden first sergeant, which he did. And so here was Green, in bars and shiny puttees. Here was Madden, trying to acquire the habit of saying, Sir, to him. Here was Tom and Dick and Harry, with whom both Green and Madden had gambled and drunk whiskey, trying to learn to remember that there was a difference not only between them and Green and Madden, but there was also a difference between Madden and Green. Oh, well, they said in American camps. He's working hard. Let him get used to it. It's only on parade, eh, Sergeant? Sure, Sergeant Madden replied. The Colonel is giving us hell about our appearance. Can't we do better than this? But at breast... "'What in hell does he think he is? Pershing?' they asked Sergeant Madden. "'Come on, come on, snap into it. If I hear another word from a man, he goes before the captain.' Sergeant Madden had also changed. "'In wartime one lives in today. Yesterday is gone, and tomorrow may never come. "'Wait till we get into action,' they told each other. "'We'll kill the son of a bitch.' "'Not Madden?' asked one, horrified. They only looked at him. "'For Christ's sake!' remarked one at last. "'But fate, using the war department as an instrument, circumvented them. "'When Sergeant Madden reported to his present captain and his old friend, "'he found Green alone. "'Sit down, damn it!' Green told him. "'Nobody's coming in. "'I know what you're going to say. "'I'm moving anyhow. "'Should get my papers tonight. "'Wait!' as Madden would have interrupted. If I want to hold my commission, I have got to work. These goddamn training camps turn out officers trained, but I wasn't, and so I'm going to school for a while. Christ, at my age, I wish to God somebody else had gotten up this damn outfit. You know where I would like to be now? Out yonder with them, calling somebody else a son of a bitch as they're calling me now. You think I get any fun out of this? Ah, oh, hell, let them talk. What do you expect?' "'Nothing. Only I had to promise the mother of every goddamn one of them that I'd look out for him and not let him get hurt. And now there's not a bastard one wouldn't shoot me in the back if he got a chance. But what do you expect from them? What do you want? This is no picnic, you know.' They sat silent across a table from each other. Their faces were ridged and sharp, cavernous in the unshadowed glare of light while they sat thinking of home, of quiet elm-shaded streets along which wagons creaked and crawled through the dusty day— and along which girls and boys walked in the evening to and from the picture show, or to sip sweet chilled liquids in drug stores, of peace and quiet and all homely things, of a time when there was no war. They thought of young days not so far behind them, of the faint unease of complete physical satisfaction, of youth and lust like icing on a cake, making the cake sweeter. Outside was Brittany and mud, an equivocal city, temporary and twice foreign, Lust in a foreign tongue. Tomorrow we die. At last, Captain Green said diffidently, You're all right? Hell yes. They wanted to reduce me at one time, but I'm all right now. Green opened his mouth twice, like a fish, and Madden said quickly, I'll look after them. Don't you worry. 
Ah, uh, I'm not. Not about those bastards. An orderly entered, saluting. Green acknowledged him, and the man delivered his message stiffly and withdrew. There it is, said the captain. You'll go tomorrow, then? Yes. Yes, I hope so, he answered, vaguely staring at the sergeant. Madden rose. Well, I think I'll run along. I feel tired tonight. Green rose also, and they stared at each other like strangers across the table. You'll come to see me in the morning? I guess so. Sure, I'll come in. Madden wished to withdraw, and Green wanted him to, but they stood awkwardly, silent. At last Green said, I'm obliged to you. Madden's light-caverned eyes held a question. Their shadows were monstrous. For helping me get by with that dose. Court-martial, you know. What did you expect of me? No less, Green acknowledged, and Madden continued. Why don't you let those women alone? They're all rotten with it. Easy to say, Green laughed mirthlessly. For you, I mean. Madden's hand strayed to the pocket of his blouse, then fell to his side again. After a while, he repeated, Well, I'll be going. The captain moved around the table, extending his hand. Well, goodbye. Madden did not take it. Goodbye? I may not see you again, the other explained lamely. Hell, you talk like you were going home. Don't be a fool. Those birds don't mean anything by panning you. It'll be the same with anybody. Green watched his knuckles whitening on the table. I didn't mean that. I meant he could not say I may be killed. A man simply didn't say a thing like that. You'll get to the front before I do, I expect. Perhaps so, but there's enough for all of us, I reckon. The rain had ceased for some reason, and there came up faintly on the damp air that sound made by battalions and regiments being quiet, an orderly silence, louder than a riot. Outside, Madden felt mud, new darkness, and damp. He smelled food and excrement and slumber beneath a sky too remote to distinguish between peace and war. 2. He thought at times of Captain Green as he crossed France, seeing the intermittent silver smugness of rain spaced forever with poplars like an eternal freeze giving way upon vistas fallow and fecund, roads and canals and villages shining their roofs violently, spires and trees, roads, villages, villages, towns, a city, villages, villages, then cars and troops and cars and troops at junction points. He saw people going about warfare in a business-like way. He saw French soldiers playing croquet in stained horizon blue. He saw American soldiers watching them, giving them American cigarettes. He saw American and British troops fighting. Saw nobody minding them particularly, save the MPs. A man must be in a funny frame of mind to be an MP, or a nigger general. The war zone. Business as usual, the golden age of non-combatants. He thought at times of Green, wondering where the other was, even after he got to know his new company commander. A man quite different from Green. He'd been a college instructor, and he could explain to you where Alexander and Napoleon and Grant made their mistakes. He was mild. His voice could scarcely be heard on a parade ground, and his men all said, "'Wait till we get into the lines. We'll fix the son of a bitch.' Sergeant Madden, however, got along quite well with his officers, particularly with a lieutenant named Powers." and with the men, too. Even after a training period with dummies and a miniature sector, he got along with them. They had become accustomed to the sound of far guns, shooting at other people, however, and the flickering horizon at night. 
They'd been bombed by airplanes while lined up for mess at a field kitchen, while the personnel of a concealed French battery watched them without interest from a dugout. They had received much advice from troops that had been in the lines. At last they were going in themselves after a measureless space of aimless wandering here and there, and the sound of guns, though seemingly no nearer, was no longer impersonal. They tramped by night, feeling their feet sink, then hearing them suck in mud. Then they felt sloping ground and were in a ditch. It was as if they were burying themselves, descending into their own graves in the bowels of the wet black earth, into a darkness so dense as to constrict breathing, constrict the heart. They stumbled on in the darkness. Out of the gratis advice they had received, they recalled strongest to drop when a gun went off or when they heard a shell coming. So when a machine gun far to the right stuttered, breaking the slow hysteria of decay which buried them, someone dropped, someone stumbled over him, then they all went down as one man. The officer cursed them, non-coms kicked them erect again. Then while they stood huddled in the dark, smelling death, the lieutenant ran back along the line, making them a brief, bitter speech. "'Who in hell told you to lie down? The only guns within two miles of you are those things in your hands there.' Feel this? This thing here? Slapping the rifles. This is a gun. Sergeants, if another man drops, tramp him right into the mud and leave him. They plowed on, panting and cursing in whispers. Suddenly, they were among men, and a veteran of four days, sensing that effluvia of men new to battle, said, Why, look at the soldiers come to fight in the war. Silence there, a non-com's voice, and a sergeant came jumping along, saying, Where's your officer? Men going out brushed them, passing on in the pitch-wet darkness, and a voice whispered wickedly, Look out for gas. The word gas passed from mouth to mouth, and authority raged them into silence again. But the mischief had been done. Gas. Bullets and death and damnation. But gas. It looked like mist, they'd been told. First thing you know, you're in it, and then good night. Silence broken by muddy movements of unrest and breathing. Eastward the sky paled impalpably, more like a death than a birth of anything, and they peered out in front of them, seeing nothing. There seemed to be no war here at all, though to the right of them a rumorous guttural of guns rose and fell thickly and heavily on the weary dawn. Powers, the officer, had passed from man to man. No one must fire. There was a patrol out there somewhere in the darkness. Dawn grew grey and slow. After a while the earth took a vague form, and someone, seeing a lesser darkness, screamed, Gas! Powers and Madden sprang among them as they fought blindly, fumbling and tearing at their gas masks, trampling each other, but they were powerless. The lieutenant laid about him with his fists, trying to make himself heard, and the man who'd given the alarm whirled suddenly on the fire step, his head and shoulders sharp against the sorrowful dawn. "'You got us killed!' he shrieked, shooting the officer in the face at point-blank range. 3. Sergeant Madden thought of Green again on a later day, as he ran over broken ground at Cantigny, saying, "'Mon, you bastards, you want to live forever?' He forgot Green, temporarily, as he lay beside a boy who'd sold him shoes back home, in a shell-hole too small for them, feeling his exposed leg whipped by a gale as a tufted branch is whipped by a storm." After a while night came, and the gale passed away, and the man beside him died. While in hospital, he saw Captain Green's name in a published casualty list. 
He also discovered in hospital that he'd lost his photograph. He asked hospital orderlies and nurses about it, but no one recalled having seen it among his effects. It was just as well, though. She had, in the meantime, married a lieutenant on the staff of a college ROTC unit. 4. Mrs. Burney's black was neat and completely air-proof. She did not believe in air, save as a necessary adjunct to breathing. Mr. Burney, a morose, silent man whose occupation was that of languidly sawing boards and then mildly nailing them together again, took all his ideas from his wife, so he believed this too. She toiled, neat as a pin, along the street, both fretted with and grateful to the heat because of her rheumatism, making a call. When she thought of her destination, of her changed status in the town above her dull and quenchless sorrow, she knew a faint pride— the stroke of fate which robbed her likewise made of her an aristocrat. The Mrs. Worthingtons, the Mrs. Saunderses, all spoke to her now as one of them, as if she too rode in a car and bought a half-dozen new dresses a year. Her boy had done this for her, his absence, accomplishing that which his presence had never done, could never do. Her black gown drank heat and held it in solution about her. Her cotton umbrella became only a delusion. How hot for April, she thought, seeing cars containing pliant women's bodies in cool, thin cloth passing her. Other women walking in delicate, gay shades nodded to her bent small rotundity, greeting her pleasantly. Her flat, common-sense shoes carried her steadily and proudly on. She turned a corner, and the sun, through maples, was directly in her face. She lowered her umbrella to it, and remarking after a while a broken drain— and feeling an arching thrust of poorly laid concrete, she slanted her umbrella back. Pigeons in the spire were coolly remote from the heat, unemphatic as sleep, and she passed through an iron gate, following a gravelled path. The rambling façade of the rectory dreamed in the afternoon above a lawn broken by geranium beds and a group of chairs beneath a tree. She crossed grass, and the rector rose, huge as a rock, black and shapeless, greeting her. "'Oh, the poor man, how bad he looks, and so old, so old we are for this to happen to us. "'He was not any good, but he was my son. "'And now Mrs. Worthington and Mrs. Saunders and Mrs. Wardle speak to me, "'stop in to chat about this and that while there is my Dewey dead. "'They had no sons, and now his son came back and mine didn't. "'And how grey his face, poor man!' She panted with heat like a dog, feeling pain in her bones, and she hobbled horribly across to the grouped figures. It was because the sun was in her eyes that she couldn't see, sun going down beyond a lattice wall covered with wisteria, pigeons crooned, liquid gutturals from the spire, slanting like smears of paint, and the rector was saying, "'This is Mrs. Powers, Mrs. Burney, a friend of Donald's. Donald, here is Mrs. Burney.' "'You remember, Mrs. Burney. She's Dewey's mother, you remember?' Mrs. Burney took a proffered chair blindly. Her dress held heat. Her umbrella tripped her bonelessly, then bonelessly avoided her. The rector closed it, and Mrs. Powers settled her in the chair. She rubbed at her eyes with a black-bordered cotton handkerchief. Donald Mahone waked to voices. Mrs. Powers was saying, "'How good of you to come. All Donald's old friends have been so nice to him.' especially the ones who had sons in the war. They know, don't they? Oh, the poor man, the poor man, and your scarred face. Madden didn't tell me your face was scarred, Donald. 
Pigeons like slow sleep, afternoon passing away, dying. Mrs. Burney in her tight, hot black, the rector, huge and black and shapeless. Mrs. Burney with an unhealed sorrow. Mrs. Powers, Dick, Dick, how young, how terribly young. Tomorrow must never come. Kiss me, kiss me through my hair. Dick, Dick, my body flowing away from me, dividing. How ugly men are, naked. Don't leave me. Don't leave me. No, no, we don't love each other. We don't. We don't. Hold me close. Close. My body's intimacy is broken, unseeing. Thank God my body cannot see. Your body is so ugly, Dick. Dear Dick. Your bones, your mouth hard and shaped as bone. Richard. My body flows away. You cannot hold it. Why do you sleep, Dick? My body flows on and on. You cannot hold it. For yours is so ugly, dear Dick. You may not hear from me for some time. I will write when I can. Donald Mahone, hearing voices, moved in his chair. He felt substance he could not see, heard what did not move him at all. Carry on, Joe. The afternoon dreamed on, unbroken. A negro, informal in an undershirt, restrained his lawnmower and stood beneath a tree, talking to a woman across the fence. Mrs. Burney, in her rigid, unbearable black, Mrs. Worthington speaks to me, but Dewey is dead. Oh, the poor man, his grey face. My boy is dead, but his boy has come home, come home with a woman. What is she doing here? Mrs. Mitchell says, Mrs. Mitchell says, that Saunders girl is engaged to him. She was downtown yesterday, almost naked, with the sun on her. She wiped her eyes again under inevitable spring. Donald Mahone, hearing voices, Carry on, Joe. I come to see how your boy's getting along, what with everything. Dewey, my boy. I miss you like the devil, Dick. Someone to sleep with? I don't know. Oh, Dick. Dick, you left no mark on me, nothing. Kiss me through my hair, Dick, with all your ugly body. And let's don't ever see each other again, ever. No, we won't, dear ugly Dick. Yes, that was Donald. He is dead. He is much better, thank you. Give him a few weeks' rest and he will be well again. I am so glad, so glad, she answered, pitying him, envying him. My son died a hero. Mrs. Worthington, Mrs. Saunders, chat with me about nothing at all. Poor boy, don't he remember his friends at all? Yes, yes. This was Donald, my son. Donald, don't you remember Mrs. Burney? She's Dewey's mother, you know. But not forever. I wish you all the luck and love in the world. Wish me luck, dear Dick. Donald Mahone, hearing voices. Carry on, Joe. The way that girl goes on with men, she thought exultantly. Dewey may be dead, but thank God he ain't engaged to her. Your boy's home. He'll be married soon and everything. So nice for you. So nice. There, there, the rector said, touching her shoulder kindly. You must come often to see him. Yes, I will come often, she replied through her black-bordered cotton handkerchief. It's so nice he come home safe and well. Some didn't. Dewey, Dewey. The sun flamed slowly across the wisteria, seeking interstices. She would see Mrs. Worthington downtown now, probably. Mrs. Worthington would ask her how she was, how her husband was. My rheumatism. But I am old. Yes, 
Yes, when we get old. You're old, too, she would think with comfortable malice. Older than me. Old, old, too old for things like this to happen to us. He was so good to me, so big and strong, brave. She rose and someone handed her the cotton umbrella. Yes, yes, I will come again to see him. Poor boy, poor man, his face so gray. The lawnmower chattered slowly, reluctantly breaking the evening. Mrs. Burney, disturbing bees, crossed grass blindly. Someone passed her at the gate, and remarking an arching thrust of poorly laid concrete and a broken drain, she slanted her umbrella backward, shielding her neat, black-clad, airproof back. Sucking silver sound of pigeons, slanting to and from the spire like smears of soft paint on a cloudless sky, the sun lengthened the shadow of the wisteria-covered wall, immersing the group chairs in cool shadow, waiting for sunset. Dick, my love, that I did not love. Dick, your ugly body breaking into mine like a burglar. My body flowing away, washing away all trace of yours. Kiss and forget me. Remember me only to wish me luck, dear ugly dead Dick. This was my son Donald. He's dead. Gilligan, crossing the lawn, said, Who was that? Mrs. Burney, the rector told him. Her son was killed. You've probably heard of him downtown. Yeah, I've heard of him. He was the one under indictment for stealing fifty pounds of sugar, and they let him go to enlist, wasn't he? There were stories. The rector's voice died away. Donald Mahone, hearing silence. You stopped, Joe? Gilligan stood near him, settling the colored glasses over his eyes. Sure, Lute. More Rome? The shadow of the wall took them completely, and at last he said, Carry on, Joe. End of section 17. This recording is in the public domain. May it end war forever.